0: I don't care if God ever shows me that this is for my good. I get to believe it. It's part of me. It's down in my toes. It's what the Bible says. Don't take that away from me. If, if God takes all, it takes everything, leave me the scriptures and don't let me ever doubt them.
1: Larry walked with me through a couple of dark spiritual valleys. He pointed me to God's abundant grace upon grace for me with no strings attached. Boy, did he ever love to talk about the good news of what Christ has done for sinners. He answered my endless questions with the love and grace of our Heavenly Father. I will always be grateful to him. Welcome to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. I'm your host, Faith Ann, and Larry Horton was my dad. The deepest connection I had with my dad was through his teaching of the gospel. My dad communicated grace more deeply and simply than most. These sermons came to be preserved through my dear Aunt Shirley, who, in the early 80s, requested that my dad's sermons be recorded on cassette tapes and mailed to her so that she could be edified from five states away. When Larry died and went home to be with the Lord in 2019, my Aunt Shirley came to the funeral and brought with her the very sermons this podcast was created to showcase. The remaining sermons were preached in the early 2000s at the church he pastored until he died. His children's prayer is that you will come to Christ through these sermons, or, if you already are a Christian, be edified and comforted, as so many were during his life. In episode 9 of the Timeless Gospel podcast, Larry continues his teaching in Romans. He's in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. After the episode, Daniel and I talk about total depravity, what it really means, and the difference between how the Armenian and how the Calvinist views salvation. You can email me at thetimelessgospel@gmail.com at if you have questions or comments.
0: We're going to just try to get through the passage, uh, Strictly a teaching time. It's important that we understand this simply because it's the Word of God and it's true. and it's not my uh, place in life to convict you of sin or to get anyone to turn to Christ or anything like that, but it is my obligation to teach the the scriptures correctly and truthfully. I am under obligation for that. So that's what we'll do this morning. now, I have rather a long introduction, and then I have uh, It's going to take a lot to get through this. So hopefully I can get through in in the next 45 minutes, but bear with me, please. If I may sound like I'm talking a bit about myself, just uh, there's a reason for it. I don't like to be sensational. I don't want to be a sensationalist. Uh, A sensationalist is someone that we notice on TV quite regularly and I suppose a lot of other folks. And it goes something like this. Uh, this passage is the greatest passage in the Bible. Well, that certainly gets your attention. Boy, that is that, the greatest passage. But then three or four weeks later, I come back in another pack, passage and I say, this is the greatest passage in the Bible. Well, it kind of puts water on my credibility, doesn't it? So I don't like to do that. But I will say this in the matter of being sensational. I have spent more thought and anguish over this passage of script- scripture than any that I have ever studied. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it, it all came finally, but I spent years and years trying to figure out what this was saying. <clears throat> One thing that people don't realize is that these great writers, the, those who God has given the ministry of these great writers, and, and, and what I'm going to say, I don't want to uh, sound disrespectful toward them, Because they've helped me. God has used them to help me in my own life. And I thank God for people like Donald Gray Barnhouse and and, uh, William R. Newell and Spurgeon and people like that. But uh, those who do a lot of writing, they do a lot of reading. That's just the way it is. You don't just sit down and start writing. You you read a lot and then you write. And I have found over the years that, that one man says this because another man wrote it. And then another man wrote it before him, and another man wrote it before him. When I was in school, you might call it a hobby, but when I had spare time, I would go to the library and I'd read commentaries. I knew I'd only have 15 or 20 minutes or a half hour maybe. I didn't really care who wrote it or, or what it, the book was about. I'd just grab a commentary and, and sit down and read a little of it, just kind of find out a little bit about the man. And where I went to school, the man that founded the school was Ellie uh, Maxwell who had written many, many books, so I grabbed one of his books one time. And I was reading this passage, and, and it was years ago, so I'd forgotten what I was reading, but at the time I thought, this is the most beautiful statement I've ever heard. How can any man know that truth? How can any man have that kind of understanding? This is just beautiful. Two or three weeks later I'm in the library and I pick out a book by uh, Martin Luther, and I'm reading through Martin Luther, and I find that very same thing. I thought, and, and Maxwell's credibility went down in my sight. You see, Well, good night. I thought, you know, L.A. Maxwell came up with this himself. But he got it from Martin Luther. And then a few weeks or months later, I'm in there and I pick up a book from Augustine that Augustine wrote in the first few centuries of the church. And there was that very same idea, that very same thought. And I thought, well, good, night. all these guys do. They just read other people and, and, and write it down. So that's a problem we have here with this passage. These men whom I, whom I, I uh, thank God for, who have helped me enormously in my own Christian walk, uh, but yet they're still just men. And I'm not putting them down. I would not want to not know what Donald Gray Barnhouse has taught me or William R. Newell or Spurgeon or these other men. But they are men, and they're given to error. Just like I'm given to error and you're given to error. So when we come to the Word of God, it's so, it's so important that we just try our best to just understand it, what is written here. And not bring all our prejudice in with, me, with us. Now to some degree we have to, I realize that, but I'm going to explain this further. The first time I went through Romans, I came to this passage, the very first time. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? And I studied it and read it and looked at all my books. I'll tell you about the books in a minute. So then I went to someone I could really trust. And I said, what does this passage mean? And he looked at it. He said, Larry, I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea what this is saying. I thought, well, I'll just skip it. In my teaching, I'll just read through it, and then we'll go on. And that's what I did. I just skipped it and went on. The second time through Romans, I came to the same spot, and I was not going to skip it this time. So I went down to San Jose Bible College, and they had 13 books, 13 commentaries on Romans. Now, I thought, I'm going to find out from these 13 books. There's bound to be one of these guys. It's right. So I read all 13 books on this passage, and a couple of them, two or three of them, were trying to show how we are saved by our works. And I just discarded those. But then the rest of them, the eight or nine of the rest of them, plus all the books that I already had, they all say pretty much the same thing. And it's, they bring Christianity into here. They bring salvation into here and they say, these people are this is talking about Christians and this is talking about non-Christians. Now let's read it just, for, just uh, to get familiar with it. Let's start with verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 2 of Romans who will render to every man according to his deeds. That's plain enough, isn't it? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatingly accusing or else defending them. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Okay. I told you a few studies back that I've never had an original thought. Then I changed it and I said, well, I've had a couple. One of them has to do, we talked briefly about uh, the fact that God could be just in crucifying Christ on the cross. We're going to deal with that uh, when we get to Abraham. We're going to look at that real close. But that was an original thought to me. I just feel like God showed me that in Scripture. Uh, but I have later found many, many men who have teach the same thing. You see, the Bible is not for any of our own interpretation. So if I come up with the truth in the Scriptures, it's got to be verified. Are we starting a sect? Who am I, or who are you, to think that God gives you the truth and no one else? That's heresy. If I believe something and it's true, you can bet all you want that there have been many, many people down through history who have believed the same thing. Now, there have been many people who, believe, who have believed wrongly, and we believe wrongly with them. Just, you know, it goes both ways. But my point is, God has not given me, and God will not give any man uh... private interpretation of the scriptures but i did have that one original thought and 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 then i found many many men who who wrote uh... the very thing that i believed and here in this passage years later it was so it was so encouraging to me because years later i found many men who taught and who wrote the very same thing concerning this passage that i felt was the truth so we do have credibility and we're not uh teaching anything under any private interpretation. <clears throat> Here's what all, the, all of our friends say. What our uh, people who, who are godly men, who have taught me greatly, they all say this. What, what Paul is saying in here is that, let's look at verse, uh, verse 7. We're just going to be jumping back and forth here to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality God's going to give them eternal life these are the ones who have accepted Christ and it's just a and then they give you just a whole bunch of double talk because that's all they can do here is just kind of double talk to try to get their theology out of this passage so we, they bring Christians in here now, now folks this is talking about Christians those who have accepted Christ uh, and then, verse 8, are those who have not accepted Christ, those are but to those who by are selfish, ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, God's going to give them wrath and indignation. It's not talking about a particular point, it's talking about a way of life. It's not saying that if you choose to, to, to do this, God's going to give you wrath, and then if you choose to do this, God will bless you. But... but what they're saying is it's the, the choice that you make. It's the way of life that you decide to go. Either accept Christ, submit to his sovereignty, submit to his glory, submit to his, to his sacrifice. And as a result of that, God's going to give you eternal life. And, 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 and in that process, you're going to persevere by doing good. Now that's all true, isn't it? But it's not. it doesn't say that here. We know that from other scripture that that's true. But it doesn't say it here. That's, that's the, uh, the problem with, and why it took me 10 minutes for my introduction. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress to every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Again, this is the, uh, the non-Christian, they say. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good. That's the Christians, they say. A Christian does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. My point is that there is, there is no scripture here for that. They're just bringing in words. They're just saying words. Now what they're saying is absolutely true if they go to some other part of the scripture. But that's just double talk here in in this passage. It doesn't say the first thing about a Christian. It doesn't say the first thing about accepting Christ. It doesn't say the first thing about uh, accepting his sacrifice on the cross. It doesn't say the first thing about a sovereign God. It doesn't say anything about anything except this is the way God is going to judge. And that's my point. We're in an area within a passage, 63 verses, showing how God is going to judge. And God is going to judge righteously. But here I'll use a word that that I don't like because it's not quite accurate uh, in, in other areas. But I will say also that God is going to judge fairly. Now, we've heard all of our lives that God is a just and fair God and half of that is true. God is just. Of course, God is just. But there isn't anywhere in the Word of God not one word that says that God is fair. God is not fair. God is not fair at all. Quite the contrary, all through Scripture we see that God is not fair, but God will judge righteously and God's going to judge fairly. We we, we have a person that's going to stand before God, and he's not going to have an excuse. We talked about creation. He suppressed the truth. He's damned. We talked about his conscience, because he can judge another one. He knows that what's right and wrong. He's practiced what's wrong. Therefore, he's damned. And here, after all that, the man says, well, I don't, just judge me according to who I am. God says, fine, I'll do that. I'll do that. And that's the context that we're reading these passages. Now, let's go back and look who will render to every man, in verse 6, according to his deeds." Now that's just a fact of life. That is just a fact. And we shouldn't have any problem with that. If you try to bring salvation in here, and you try to bring justification in here, you've got enormous trouble, you've got enormous problems. But the fact is, write this down, mark it down, take it to the bank. God not only is going to judge because you're an Adam, not only going to judge because you didn't accept Christ, not only going to judge because of, of creation, not only going to judge uh, because of your morality, but, but going to judge you according to your deeds. Have you did great things? Great. God, God, God will justify you. You won't get to heaven without accepting Christ? Fine. Just stand before God and let him judge you according to your deeds. According to your good works, according to, to your morality, according to who you are. You can stand before God and God will judge you. And God won't bring in Adam, won't bring in Christ. He'll just judge you on your own merit. And if you want that, I pity you. God will judge you truthfully according to your deeds. Okay, verse 7. Now, to those, if you've done this, you're you're going to be okay, guys. You can just forget about the cross. You don't need it to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality God will give them eternal life. Now just write that down. That's a fact. Don't bring your theology into this passage. Don't bring in all the commentaries into this passage. Don't bring in all the the stuff in here about, about Christ and the cross. The very truth is that if you will do this God will give you eternal life. Now, have you done it? That's the question. You're, we're going, a person, the, the non-believers, are going to stand before God with, with their mouths closed. They're not going to say a word. They're going to be without excuse. Verse 20 of, of chapter 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood through what has been made, so, they, so that they are without excuse. Verse 3 of chapter 2, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is no escape. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you, by the way, in, in, in over here in creation, Paul's saying they. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all. That's, that's everybody. That's they. That's them. They, them, and us. But in chapter 2 he says, therefore you are without excuse. Brings it down into an individual. You are without excuse. So we're without excuse and there is no escape. And one of the ways in which we're going to be judged, those who are want to settle in, in the court of law rather than outside the court of law, will be judged by our deeds. If you do good, God will give you, God will give you eternal life. I'm not saying any more. I'm not being any more heretical than the scriptures are. If you do good... God will give you eternal life. Verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So you got a choice here. You can stand before God on your good deeds and hope for the best. But I think we all know that if we stand before God like that, we can find selfishness in our lives, we can find ambitious ambition in our lives, we can can find that we have not obeyed the truth, we can find that we have been unrighteous, therefore wrath and indignation is upon us all. Wrath, we talked about that word, that's the same same word as in verse 18. That blooming, that flower that blooms, God's wrath will bloom against you. This word indignation is an interesting word. It means narrow, the narrowness. God is going to bloom. You're going to, His wrath is going to come upon you. And there's not going to be anybody with you. You're going to be narrow. You're going to be by yourself. Type of, of uh, sentencing. That's kind of what the word means. It has to do with, with very confined. I wonder if maybe that isn't where we get the, the idea of, of jail in Hades. Uh, what's the change or whatever. I forget. But anyway, it's the narrowness. You're going to be narrow. God's narrowness is going to be upon you. Uh, In the same way, uh, uh, maybe some people have, this is where they bring in the the blackness of hell or the aloneness of hell, uh, where we are alone with only our memories. There have been maybe hundreds of of, uh, famous sermons preached on the hound of hell. I think maybe, I don't know who started it. I know Spurgeon has got one. The hound of hell. And then in our, in our day, I heard a pastor here just a few years ago preach on the subject of God's bloodhound. What is God's bloodhound? What is the hound of hell? And he shows it's our memory. It's our memory. We could remember back when we could have accepted Christ and we didn't. Son, remember, Abraham said. Son, remember to that fellow that was in hell. Our memory stays with us. Our bodies will go to the grave and, 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 and deteriorate. But our memory will be with us from now on. You are always going to be you. And God's wrath and God's narrowness will be upon you. If you don't do good. If you do good, you'll, you'll be okay. I'm just saying what the scriptures say. <clears throat> Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So there you have it. God's going to judge fairly. Even though I, I, until today I've never used that word for, for God in Scripture. But he's going to judge you according to your deeds. He's not an unjust God. When he judges you, and, and most of the time, most of the time, when, God, when the word judgment is used, it can be interchanged with condemns. We think of a judgment as maybe going this way or that way, don't we? but really here in, the, in context in the, in the original language, when God condemns you. And, and we, uh, we, we're, we're funny people. We think so weird. <clears throat> uh, four times four is 16. A first grader, second grader, I'm not a, I don't know, but may not know that exactly. They may have to work at learning that. So little Sally, on the test, 4 times 4 equals 15. And little John, he says, 4 times 4 equals 6. The teacher marked 0 on Sally's paper and marked 0 on John's paper. Sally gets mad. Why did you give me a 0? Because you missed the the question. Yes, but you gave John a 0. And I got a lot closer than John did to the answer. Well, there, between the number, there, there are one million whole numbers between one and a million. And from one to a million, there's only one whole number that's the answer to four times four. And that's 16. And if you don't get 16, then you miss it. You get a zero. God's going to judge. And I want him to judge me according to Penny. I want him to judge me according to Linda. I got a chance. But he's going to judge us according to his perfect righteousness. And his perfect righteousness, I can't get there. I can get closer than Adolf Hitler. Someone else, Billy Graham, may get closer than me. But if you don't get 16, you're out. And we're all sitting there warning God to judge us according to how good we are. The mind is so wicked, so immature, so immature. We think of little Sally as being crazy for wanting, for wanting the teacher to give her a better grade than little Johnny. And we want to stand before God in the very same way. Here I am, sir. Judge me according to my deeds. God says, okay, sure will. But are you perfect? Are you perfect? If you're not perfect, you've got a lot of trouble. God's not going to judge you according to your friend. He's... How many have played pool? We've all played pool? Okay. Do you know how smooth a cue ball is? That pool ball, it is really smooth, isn't it? Perfect circle, right? The world, this creation that God has made, if you would would bring its dimensions down to the size of a cue ball, it would be smoother. It would be smoother than the cue ball. We look at the Rocky Mountains, the majestic Rocky Mountains. We look at the great oceans. We look at, uh, uh, out in Arizona, Grand Canyon, you know. We see all these things and we think, oh, what, what majesty, what magnificence, what, what glory. And yet if you were to reduce it all down, the world is smoother in the hands of God than the cue ball in our hands. Einstein was a complete and total idiot. If you put him up against the wisdom of God, you want to put me up against Einstein and judge me there. Well, Larry's here, 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 here. And that's what you want. You want me to judge you according to Einstein? Well, yeah, you're here, 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 here. But what really is the difference between an Einstein and a Larry Horton up against the the wisdom of God? You know, there's no... Where do you stop? Where do you, where do you finally draw a line? Einstein's IQ was 500. My IQ is 3. Up against an IQ of 29 trillion, trillion, billion, trillion, gillion. What really is there a difference between 500 and 3? Do you want to be judged by your works? Verse, verse, uh, verse 11 now in this judgment this wrath and indignation is going to come upon all those I'm not saying who do not believe we'll find that in other passages won't we of course I'm saying here who don't do good and also in this time God's going to judge without any partiality verse is it 16 oh no Verse 11, he's going to judge without any partiality. And, and, I, and, and this struck home to me years ago. Driving uh, Highway 101, I believe, from San Jose to San Francisco. If you take kind of an offshoot there and you go to the left instead of going on into San Francisco, you come down on the other side of town. And almost right in the middle of town, there's what they call the Presidio. And it's an army base. And before you get there, you just go miles and miles and miles of a cemetery. I guess they bury everybody in the armed services, and that's one cemetery. Just for, for miles and miles, it just rolls. And it's on these great big hills, and the, the grass is mowed down real low. It's just beautiful, just, just really pretty. And you look out there, and you see that every single gravestone is exactly the same. It stands up about that high. And I know that there are three presidents buried in that graveyard. And how many thousands of privates are buried in that graveyard? And when you look out there, you can't see any difference between the presidents and the privates. They all have the same marker. God is going to judge without partiality. He's going to to look down on you and say, Okay, I'm going to judge you by my righteousness. I'm not going to judge you by Billy Graham's righteousness. I'm not going to judge you by your wife's righteousness. I'm going to judge you by my righteousness. And up against my righteousness, no man can stand before God. So that's, he, 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 he judges without partiality. Verse 12. For all, now we get into another subject. You ready to switch gears? Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. How? Okay, let's just hold that because it doesn't say right, right here. Just, just hold on, and, and in just a very quick minute, we'll get to that. How are those who do not have the law of God, or how are they going to perish? without that law. See, God's been talking about deeds according to his law, his righteousness. Well, what about the fellow that's never heard about his righteousness? The fellow that's never read his law, that doesn't, that's never read the Ten Commandments, that knows nothing about that? What about that fellow? Paul's going Paul's to answer that question, but not just yet. <clears throat> Start again in, in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. Now, you can bring the Jews in here if you want to. I'm going to wait and bring them in in verse 17. But at that time, the Bible was written, it was talking about the Jews. They they had the oracles of God. They had the law of God. The Gentiles didn't have anything. But in our day, today, we're talking about the American Christian, the American professing Christian who has the word of God, who who has been taught from birth that this is the, 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 the revealed will of God and there's no errors in it. Stomach those people. You don't believe the Bible and you don't know the Bible and you don't know nothing about the Bible? Fine, but I do. And I'll tell you what, I know a lot about this Bible. I know, I know an awful lot, a great deal about this Bible if you compare it with the, with the guy over in Africa that's never even picked one up. God says, fine, I'm going to judge you according to this word. <clears throat> Is murder wrong? Well, yes. How do you know that? Well, I know it in your Ten Commandments. Okay, I'll judge you by that. So none of us can escape there. Everybody in America knows about the Bible and what it says to some degree. Just about everyone. So we, we, we're just going to take the place of the Jews right here in this passage. So you want to you know what's right? You want people to treat you right? You want to live right? Okay, God's going to judge you according to what's right in his word. And he's going to judge you according to his law. Now if you obey his law and do good, he'll bless you and he'll take you to heaven and spend eternity with him. But if you don't, If you stump your toe, he's going to judge you according to that law. Why did I say that? Because of verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We have whole denominations that have started over that one verse and are just as wrong They're just as wrong because they're trying to bring salvation into a passage into 63 verses that's only talking about judgment. But I will say with the Scriptures that if you obey the law, you will be justified. But don't obey the law according to little Sally. Obey the law according to the righteous judgment of God. Now, if you offend in one point, James tells us, if you just offend in one point, you have disobeyed the whole law. And that's why, why that is, is, it doesn't mean that God's being, being uh, this is important. It doesn't mean that God is, is, is uh, wanting to condemn you to hell because uh, he, he put a loophole in here and, and you should have known that and you stumped your toe there, so boom, he gets to send you to hell. No, that's, that's not what, what the deal is. The deal is that God cannot draw lines. We live by line drawers. You cannot give me, you cannot give me an illustration in life that you don't draw lines. I love my wife. She loves me. But there's a line that can be drawn there where I'll get rid of her as quick as I can. And she'll get rid of me. Where is the line? Children, I don't take any illustration, school, anything. But with God, God cannot draw lines. So when he judges... There's no end to it. When he loves, thank God, there's no end to it. He loves us unconditionally. No matter what we do, he loves us if we're one of his sheep. But in the same way, if you offend in one point of God's law, he's not being up there trying, trying to get you into hell on a technicality. He can't do any different. He cannot do any different because of his own nature. Of his own character. If you've offended in one point you've broken the whole law of God because he doesn't draw any lines. and That's exactly why when we're in Adam as we'll see later this will come back up again about God drawing lines. When we're in Adam because we're in Adam we're condemned to death. That's why babies die because they're sinners. If they weren't sinners they wouldn't die. Why are they sinners? They can't even talk because they're in their father Adam. Well why does God judge a baby who hasn't even done anything good or bad, can't do anything good or bad, just totally innocent, why, does, why would God judge him as a sinner? Because he's in his father, Adam. And God, when Adam sinned, God didn't draw a line at Adam. He can't draw lines. It's got to go all the way through life. Every human being that's ever been born, God says, you're a sinner. Why? Because I'm judging your father, Adam. God does not draw lines. He loves unconditionally. And he judges unconditionally. So not the hearers of the Lord just, it doesn't do any good, gang, to know the word of God and not do it and try to get into heaven. Well, I memorized the whole Bible. I I think there's a guy that that has done that, isn't there? I know every verse in the Bible doesn't do you a bit of good unless you obey every verse in the Bible. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, in verse 14, Paul's going to answer the question he raises in verse 12. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish, without the law. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles, and that, again, in our day we're considered to be Gentiles, but really we're not. We're we're more Jewish in the fact that we know the revealed word of God in America. We're talking about those folks who have never heard of Jesus Christ who have never heard of the Bible, who have never heard of the law of God, well surely God would not judge them. We were in a meeting one time and I had about I don't know 30 or 40 people out there and I asked that question. I said, if there were a person who had, God had never given opportunity to accept Christ, who had never heard the name of Christ and if he died, would he go to heaven or hell? All of you in favor of Him going to heaven, raise your hand, and all but one raise their hand. All of you that say He's going to hell, raise your hand, and one person raise their hand. To start with, we've got a big problem if those folks go to heaven because then you've got two different salvations. If they've never heard of Christ and they get to heaven, then you've got two different kinds of salvations. That's number one. Number two is uh, we ought to stop all our missionary efforts. Just cut it back and don't, don't, don't tell anybody nothing about the gospel. Because if they hear the gospel and don't accept it, they're condemned. But if they don't hear it at all, they can go to heaven. That's ridiculous. Well, then how is God going to judge that, that guy around that fire that doesn't know God, doesn't, has never heard of Christ, never heard of his, of his Bible? Very simply, verse 14, For when Gentiles or heathen who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. God says, okay, I'm, I'm still, I'm still going to get you. I don't care what you come up with, I'm still going to get you. In this tribe where they don't preach Christ, no one's ever heard of him. They kill all the missionaries. A missionary shows up, anybody that's white, they show up, they just, they just shoot them with an arrow right then and there. They've never heard of Jesus Christ. They've never heard of the Bible. They've never heard of the law of God. How do you suppose those tribes operate? They operate by law. You cannot have a society, even in a tribe, you cannot have a society without law. Every society known to man, small or large, has laws. And missionaries tell us that they have never, ever, no one, no missionary in the history of the world has ever went into a tribe. From what I can't document, this, this is what I've heard. Has never found a tribe anywhere in the world where murder was not wrong. And they've never found a tribe where now it may be that that they'll kill their neighbors you know in an act of war, but I'm talking about their own families. And they've never met they've never been in a tribe where there was not law in the tribe. Somebody was chief and he dictated what the law was. Paul says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law unto themselves. It's very simple, isn't it? You go into a tribe and it says, uh, they say uh, you cannot uh, pick up sticks on on a full moon. Has anybody ever done that? They're, they're, They're condemned right there. God says, okay, if you don't want to be judged by my law, I'll judge you by your own law. What do you think is right? Have you ever done wrong? Then I'm going to judge you according to that not having the law they are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts it shows that that, see when man fell true Adam was created in the image of God and all the rest of human beings have have been born in the image of Abel Cain Cain was the first one okay so we're dead in our trespasses and sins spiritually I realize that but still at one time there was this perfect man who had the law of God uh, and, and he lived in total obedience to the law of God total obedience he was a perfect man although you couldn't kill him it had been impossible for him to die totally impossible for him to die but hypothetically if somehow he could have died he would just went right into heaven with God because he was perfect he was perfect by his obedience. He was sanctified by his obedience. He was justified by his obedience. But the moment he fell, the age of grace came in. And every man since then has been saved by grace and not by obedience. He's, 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 he's been sanctified by grace, not by obedience. So, <clears throat> that law of God, that righteousness of God, that that glory of God, that, that justice of God was implanted into our father, Adam, and it has never completely been destroyed. Even though Adam was, even though we, as ch- children of Adam, are dead in our trespasses and sins, we still, God has seen to it that we still have that, that mentality that Adam had before the fall. Now, it's been tainted terribly. And don't for a moment think that we, can, that we can turn to Christ because of what I'm about to say. But we still have that morality, a, a, a part of it. It's been destroyed down through the ages, but, but God still gives it to every baby. Every baby knows when it lies. Every baby knows when they lie. Every baby knows how to get its own way. And they know when they do that, it's wrong. It's, it, it's instinctively in them. So Paul is saying, you're over here in his tribe. And, and you're well thought of in the tribe, and you, and you give, and you do some good, and, and Paul says, that's great. God says, that's, that's good. It, it excuses you. But, if, but, but if, are there times when, when you didn't do that good? Are, you, are there times when you were selfish? Were there times when you killed somebody? Are there times when you got mad at somebody? You know in your own conscience that it was wrong. I'm going to judge you according to that. Now, I realize on the surface that we can different, different societies have different rules. And that's exactly what, what, what... I'm not getting away from the subject. That's what, that's what uh, Paul is saying here. Different societies do have different rules. And the conscience is different. But instilled into every one of us is the, 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 the notion that we must obey. We must obey. We all know that. The prisoner knows that. The judge knows that. The heathen knows that. Everyone knows. We must obey. And, and we don't, even in our own society. I know that I'm supposed to drive 50, 65 miles an hour. I know that. There is no need to preach to me about driving a speed limit. I know that. But I don't do it. God can send me to hell on that one thing right there. Okay. That's what, it, that's what it means when it says that their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatingly accusing or else defending them Now a churchgoer is going to be uh, very very seldom will they will they ever be uh, will their conscience defend them because they know too much they're constantly going to be driven down we're going to get into that in a big way but the non-churchgoer might live a more ungodly life than a churchgoer and, and it'll be okay he won't he won't, uh, he won't think that, uh, uh, that it's, he's being bad. But he will do things that he thinks is bad. He will realize that there are things in his life that, that are bad. It's against the law of the land. It's against his own conscience. That this conscience that is seared, it is never so seared that he doesn't realize that it's wrong unless God gives him up. Okay, we studied that a week or two ago. Verse 16, I'll quit. On the day when, according to my gospel, and that, isn't that a neat saying, that, ca- that, that Paul knew the gospel well enough to call it his? Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And it, it only took him a few verses to get from the gospel of God down to his gospel. That is so beautiful to me, that he knew the gospel so well that, that he could call it his own. The gospel that Paul preached is a gospel that the Huss preached, and the gospel that Luther preached, and Calvin and Zwingli, uh, Luther, uh, Spurgeon, were in good company, and all those men call it their gospel. I want to be able to call it my gospel with Paul. On the day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men's thought through Christ Jesus, the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You can do all kinds of things to impress me. Boy, I'll tell you, I am easily conned. And I'm easily impressionable. And, and we could go from now on, on how you, can, how you can show me how good you are. But I can't get inside your head. I don't know what you're thinking. You're, you're doing this wonderful thing for me. And I don't know why you're doing it. But God does. Every secret, every secret is going to come out. Don't you have secrets? Boy, I have a thousand of them that I don't even want my own wife to know. I don't want her to know who, what I'm really thinking. God knows what I'm really thinking. There is no escape. There is just no escape. You name me a subject, and I promise you there's no escape. God's got a way to judge you. He is too brilliant not to. He's not going to allow you to continue in your degradation and your your unfaithfulness and your disobedience and your unrighteousness and your ungodliness without doing something with that. He's going to get you. We've left one person out. There's still one guy that we haven't talked about, and that is the professor. I am a Christian because I prayed a prayer because I have been in church for twenty-three years and I'm a good man. I, I've been saved by my profession. There is one more, how can God judge that person? I've done all I can. I've done all I know to do. I've bowed my knee. I prayed to Jesus save me. I know that God loves me because the Bible tells me so. I, I've done everything I can do. Am I still lost? Is God going to condemn me too? Yes, there is no escape. There is no escape. And again, as I said last week, boy, you don't ever want to get in the courtroom of God. You best settle this thing out of court because if you go into court, he's got you. Amen. Any questions or comments? Penny. Basically, you know, you'd ask me whether I found any study, and I told you
1: I'd read it every
0: day this week. Right.
1: what what my gut instinct was was this this was another way to judge exactly it was was just more ways to list that if you want you know if you don't I didn't see salvation here no I mean I did when I first read it because I thought perhaps I was not profound enough to see the truth so I was trying to make something more than there was to it but my feeling was that that, yeah you do good and you'll go to heaven
0: that's right exactly We've been, we've been discussing God. You, when you think of God, you think of love and mercy and salvation. But this is his wrath, this is his judgment. And we've been discussing how God judges. And God does not judge unfairly. He does not judge unfairly. He's, if you do good, he's going, he's going to bless you. I promise you, if you do good, he's going to give you eternal life. Let me back up on that blessing business. I'm not, I, what I meant to say was, if you, if you do good, God will send, take you to heaven because it would not be right of God for you to do good, and he'll not take you to heaven, would it? If you were perfect, he ought to take you to heaven. He says, you're right. I will, take me. I will take you to heaven. That's all. We're just talking about how God judges. Thanks, Daniel, for coming back on.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: I enjoy our discussions, and I know your time's limited, so I feel very honored when you uh, set a, a little chunk aside for me and for the Timeless Gospel podcast. My pleasure. At this time, Larry's continuing in Romans, continuing to tell us how God is going to judge us. And he spends a lot of time here explaining the importance of really looking at the verses in chapter two and exegeting them properly. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that's so important for the Christian?
2: Yeah, we all have a tendency to bring our presuppositions to the text. That's um, a, it's a, terrible habit that we all have. And I think the faithful Christian seeks to eliminate as much of that as possible. And so um, to go slowly, verse by verse, or even word by word sometimes, um, really forces you to pause and just see what
1: the text says. Yeah, and he he was reiterated many times that we do have, the Christian does have the blessings of eternal life and the righteousness, but but in the verses that he was uh, looking at, 6 through 16, that was not, those were not verses talking about salvation.
2: Yeah, that's but, a perfect example of that. That's a perfect example of, of not importing what we think the text says into the text. Larry spent, what, probably the first 15 minutes trying to deal with just that, that um, if you want to talk about Christianity or how Christians behave, um, the, the righteousness that Christians live out and seek after, um, you can go to other places in the Bible and find that. And that's all true, as Larry said. But Larry's insistence that this passage doesn't have any of that is a, is a perfect example of not wanting to bring something into the text that's just not there. And so here in those verses, starting all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, it's just judgment. That's all there is. We've not gotten into any kind of um, teaching about how a Christian becomes a Christian, how a Christian learns to seek after righteousness. None of that has been brought up yet and won't be until chapter 3, perhaps. But for now... We're just going to insist that all that's in view here is God's judgment against the sinner, and that righteous judgment.
1: Right, and he spends a lot of time not only just in these passages, but he's been spending weeks in the first part of Romans. Whereas most preachers, especially ones who uh, are tend towards the Armenian side of things, would skim over these verses. Uh, They would, they would not be. As um, intentional about explaining the the shape we are in, mm. the shape we are in. This is how things really are, folks. And he even talked in the last sermon. He's like, we're in the stockyards, but and he says we're gonna get through this quick as I can, and then proceeds to spend an entire hour there. Right. But it was that important to him that the Bible be uh, preached, that we understand where we are. The starting point, yeah, so that we can appreciate the ending point.
2: Yeah, you. If you just start with the good news before laying out what the bad news is, the good news has lost a lot of its beauty.
1: Yeah, and that would segue right into something else that I wanted to touch on. From the earliest episodes, we've been bringing up the terms on Armenian, Armenianism, and Calvinism. And because we're in the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the world, thought it would be a good time to just talk a little bit about total depravity, just in case we have some listeners that don't don't know what we mean when we say Arminianism or Calvinism or total depravity. Now, let me tell you what I think, and then you can tell me what you think if you agree. I think that the Armenian is going to read the first... Th- Dad says it's 66 verses, right? Of judgment.
2: I think 63.
1: Okay. Yeah. And they'll say, yeah, I know. Yeah. We're under judgment. I completely agree with you. I'm a sinner, but I chose, I chose the Lord because I'm a sinner. So I think that the, the Armenian doesn't fight the judgment of God. What they fight is their ability to get out from underneath it. What do you think?
2: I think that's right. Um, it, and in, in the reason for there is, I think, several reasons, but one of the main reasons we won't get to in, in the Roman study for, well, however long it takes Larry to get to chapter five. But we, we just don't know what happened at the fall um, or many Christians don't know the severity of what happened at the fall. And um, without getting too technical there, there's a a way that the Armenian believes called semi-Pelagianism. And uh, basically what that means is, yes, there was a fall, and yes, even the fall affected all of humanity, but the fall did not affect the entirety of the sinner. There is, maybe you might call it an island of righteousness left within the sinner that has not been affected, and that is... um, the part of the sinner that is capable of cooperating with the grace of God to make a choice for salvation.
1: Do you know what that sounds a lot like? That sounds a lot like Satan saying, "You will surely not die," to Eve. Mm. That. So in Rome, in uh, Genesis two seventeen, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, "The tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat." for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die now what what does that mean what does what does spiritual death mean for the sinner
2: yeah you shall surely die can um definitely mean um physical death but it can also mean spiritual death and i think that's from the text that's what is made plain because physically adam nor eve did die they continued living but is, Christ a, is God a liar? Did God lie when he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die? Was he mistaken? Or did they die? And the answer is they did die. They did not die physically. They died spiritually. And what that means is all that's left is flesh.
1: And the Lord doesn't have very good things to say about our flesh.
2: Right, right.
1: So it, it's just no matter what way you look at it. We are incapable.
2: Incapable. We uh, we have no ability spiritually. If all that is left is flesh, what can the the flesh do spiritually? That that's an impossibility.
1: Because we were talking earlier about the nature of uh, and the choices that the flesh will make. It's not that we are bound by God. Well, we are, but. It's that we're limited in the, in the scope of our choices.
2: The, the, the set of choices that we that, that are available to us is the set that's available to us because of our nature. Right? Our nature dictates what we will choose. just like a dog, a dog's nature dictates the, the doggishness of his choices. And so for the sinner who is only flesh, the The choices that are available to to that person are not spiritual. There are no spiritual choices available to him and so while he makes his choices freely he he chooses what he desires um freely, but what it is that he desires is in bondage to his nature as a sinner
1: right it, yes, he's in bondage. Yeah, Luther has a book called The Bondage of the Will. Right. Yeah.
2: And that was that was actually a response to Erasmus's book The Freedom of the Will. And that was the argument he was trying to make. And I highly encourage any of our listeners to if you've not read The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther, go get a copy of it and read it and reread it. It absolutely destroys the concept of um, free will
1: and and the bible destroys the, the concept of free will too
2: it, it certainly does if
1: if you're doing what larry did and many other many 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 other men of god reformed and uh, reformed baptists and calvinists that want to they want to know what the bible really has to say they take their own pride away from it right look at it and we we find that the bible doesn't describe sinners with like you said, like is it Pelagianism? Who was the guy? Pelagius. Pelagius. We don't find the Bible describing the sinner as a tiny island no. of righteousness. We described the or we read the Bible describing the sinner as um, wicked, wicked from the from the womb, at war with God. Uh, we don't. We're not refugees. We're not. Um, on the side, the bad the bad country fighting the good country, and then we've decided, we look around and change our minds and say, oh, I'm on the wrong side, and we trot over to the other side. Now, we are at war with God, and the only reason we're, we become on the other side is the work that God does in us first. Right. Yeah. You know, it, I think it might be helpful for us to even bring up the very verses that we're talking about and what... Larry would talk about, and all these men of God would talk about. Um, and then we'll talk about after we read a couple of the verses. I, uh, I think we should talk about how this gospel shapes uh, many things in our lives, but mainly our Christian, our thankfulness, our gratitude, mm. and, our, and our missions. Excellent. I mean, we start with Genesis uh, you will surely die. That happened that happened and that would be all you need but there's there's certainly more rome in romans 3 9 through 12 what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one and that's quoting psalm but why Why would that not mean that no one seeks for God? It says right there, <laughs> no one seeks for God.
2: And then Paul reiterates that. No one seeks for God, not even one. And yet the Arminian wants to say, no, I, I did. I did seek after God, and I made the choice, and that's why I'm saved.
1: Yeah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. Titus 1, 15 through 16, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And that's what you were talking about, about the choices that the flesh will make is going to be so defiled right. that it's it's not going to look at a God and say, oh, I want to be under someone's authority. Sign me up for that. Right. Like the Christian longs for that. But the, but the unregenerate doesn't long for that. We don't want people over us.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and because their minds are defiled, they wouldn't even be able to conceive of the true God. They would conceive of a wretched, horrible God. And so even more so, they wouldn't want that God over them.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's like only having a small piece of, of, of understanding. It's like having a tiny bit of knowledge and and having no depth of the entirety of the nature of god his nature right and then the because we're judged so completely and inescapably then that salvation is is that much more uh, miraculous mm-hmm. would you say miraculous that the fact that god chose to save me i just can't even believe it sometimes
2: right yeah
1: so how how does the, the Calvin—we use the term Calvinist, or we could say the doctrines of grace, understanding the doctrines of grace—how does that shape um, the way we minister or the way we spread the good news of the gospel?
2: Well, I think it's um, that you have something um, beautiful to offer. If the Armenian is uh, trying to evangelize, there's a couple things. Number one, if it comes down to the person making the choice to believe or not believe, to follow God or not to follow God, um, that's a burden. So the gospel that you're you're presenting is burdensome, not beautiful. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, for the Armenian, God's trying his best to get people saved. And... They're just so hard-headed and stubborn and so he's really just not getting his way really is he for the for the Calvinist for somebody who believes in sovereign grace um, who has trusted in a God who does whatsoever he pleases and has told us to to go make disciples of the nations to to spread the gospel that person can evangelize in a much more happy and sincere way because he knows the success is guaranteed. Maybe not during this one particular encounter, but the overall project will succeed.
1: Because he defines success differently than the Armenian. The Armenian has a chalkboard and is tallying up the souls that he's won over, that he has won over by proclaiming the gospel and the and that's the win for the Armenian, and the win for the Calvinist is I got to preach the gospel
2: mm, yeah and 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 sit back and wait and watch God work
1: and watch God work exactly, watch God participate yeah in but not direct.
2: yep,
1: participate in but not direct. we have absolutely no control over that.
2: Right. I've made this argument uh, on a number of occasions before, and I'm not sure how well it goes over, but um, it just seems so logical to me that if, if Arminianism is true, if free will is true, if, it is a, if, if salvation comes down after, after all the analysis, the, the person's choice is what either makes it or breaks it, the person's will. Then the best way to evangelize is torture. We right. we should go grab up our loved ones and tie them up and start beating about beating them about the head and shoulders,
1: <laughs> right?
2: To to get them to change their will.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, okay, it's compelled, but at least their mind is changed. They they've decided. Okay, I do love Jesus. <laughs> What's a few bruises? What's a f- what's a few few bruises? The yeah. the end justifies the means. Yeah, but it's not a matter of the will, and it wouldn't it in in reality it wouldn't matter um, how much you beat somebody. The sinner is so at war with God it, it, that's not going to be enough. That that will not change somebody's mind.
1: No, um,
2: and it will not get them into heaven.
1: Right. Yeah, and again, plenty
2: of people have 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 chosen. Christ, um, and I put chosen in air quotes mm-hmm. um, who have then walked away from the church and died and gone to hell.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it sounds like we're beating a dead horse, but we just cannot emphasize enough the nature of the of, of the sinner. It, it is not a um, blank slate. it is not a no. neutral. Uh, I've got my devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, and they're both competing for my attention right. and my loyalty. And some of us, uh, some of us make the right choice, and some of us don't. And notwithstanding that, the sin of unbelief is is paid for. Right. The sin of unbelief is pa- Was it paid for or not? So my unbelief shouldn't keep me out of heaven at all. Because if that was paid for, right. You almost have like a double jeopardy situation or maybe in reverse. I don't know. But uh, it it just, if if you come to the Bible with with looking to see what the Lord says to us, looking for the truth, it is the doctrines of grace that you see. Yeah. And while we're not going to sit here and say that um, an Armenian is not saved, we would say that an Armenian is missing out. On a whole lot of goodness and gratitude yeah. and understanding by thinking that they had just a tiny bit to do with the glorious salvation that is, you know, the Lord that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, accomplishes.
2: Yeah, I, I agree that um, in in no way do I want to be misunderstood um, as saying that Armenians cannot be saved. I I think that's a good point to make. As I'm making that point, though, I also want to make it clear that while I believe in Ar- there, there are Arminians that are Christians, that I don't mean just professing Christians, but they've been born again. They've been regenerated. They have accepted Christ. They are on their way to heaven. Um, those are those Armenians that you're talking about that are missing out on an awful lot. Um, but I, I, I want to stress the point that there are many Armenians that are just not Christians. they go to church every Sunday. they um, volunteer in church, they give to charities, they do all the quote- unquote Christian things that Christians do. Um, but th- it, it's it's a different gospel. It is unbiblical that man, the sinner, would get any kind of glory, any kind of credit for the choice that they made. That's just unbiblical. And for the Arminian that um, has been taught this and has grown up with, with this type of teaching that just doesn't know the other side, I want to give them as much grace as I possibly can. But the Arminians that know both sides of it um, or or have been exposed let's say to the other side of it but just um absolutely defiantly reject it i I fear for their souls
1: mm. well we talked about that the last time you came on we talked about making that an idol yep uh, you can make Armenianism an idol if you're not careful but we we make other things idols too but I I don't know i I think that if if you, if what you're relying on for your salvation is belief in the finished work of Christ on the cross, then I I think that's that's the saving faith that is necessary for salvation. Uh, But I would put that person who's going to hear the doctrines of grace and insist that they had a tiny bit to do with it is a very, very immature Christian. So maybe there's a little bit of
2: I, I think Good so and, there, I, I, well i i agree with everything you just said um and maybe we draw the line, draw the lines differently um but i i don't i don't want to be accused of being able to know or discern mm-hmm. who is and who isn't um with any kind of certainty but i i would want to uh make it important that we're not these are not trifles no this is serious business um and 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 for the Christian, I mean the genuine Christian there is going to be a desire to not rob Christ of his glory
1: That's a good point that's a very good point yeah, the glory of god is is the most important thing, and that's that's why the uh unbeliever pushes up against it so hard yes, they don't want. To lose any of their glory. That's
2: it. Yeah. That's it. And and that is such a that it it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. That that's what we all do. And to think that this argument would be exempted from that problem. Right. No, it it, it permeates all of life. You go to work to glorify yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You go to church. Some people go to church to glorify themselves. Um, you get the shiny car. Why? To glorify yourself. Um, that's what we do. It, we're addicted to glorifying ourselves.
1: Yeah, and and the Christian in his flesh is is struggles with that too, just as much as the non-believer.
2: Absolutely. The
1: difference is though that you know the Christian has the the life of Christ in him and can recognize what what he should be pining after. Yeah versus what uh, the unbeliever doesn't care. Or, as as Larry was explaining in, in a few of these um, sermons, just, uh, well, in this one, he said, most people compare themselves to their neighbor, and then they use that as the judge. And you were talking earlier about when, do you remember what you were saying about putting, when you put yourself in the, in the judgment seat to judge right and wrong? But I don't...
2: Yeah, you... you... That's another nasty habit that we all have. We, we want to imagine ourselves being able to crawl up into the seat of judgment, where only God belongs. And we think we're, we're in this place of judgment, and now we can look down our nose at others and pass judgment on them and somehow escape that same judgment. When we're doing the very thing the same things that we're judging them for, the, the only difference is we're in the place of judgment. Yeah. Um, and we're fooling ourselves. And we're uh, imagining that we, in and of ourselves, have any inkling of what justice is, of what right and wrong is, of what good and evil is. We have no claim to those things. We do not know those things apart from God.
1: Right. And we don't get to define them.
2: We we don't get to define them.
1: It does mean, though, we can call out it. We can call evil out when we see it. But it, but it's God's evil that we're calling, or what God defines as evil that we're calling out. Exactly. Not our own.
2: God, it's God's standard that we're using to, to call out this good or evil.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to read something from Pink in The Attributes of God, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. Um, I, I have a couple things that I thought was really interesting to talk about, uh, very quickly. And then if you have anything else you want to talk about, I'm, I'm here. (laughs) Um, this is from the attributes of God, Arthur Pink in chapter five, the supremacy of God, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possessed no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship merits, not but contempt it's contemptuous like why would you worship a God that can't that can't finish what he's that can't do what he desires to do
2: except for you yeah in, in, unless you do your part yeah his purpose is thwarted yeah that God does not deserve to be worshipped
1: right right and and what's so funny is they see the power of God all in all through the Bible in the Old Testament they see God turning the will of Pharaoh on and off like a faucet. Clearly, ex- ex- showing that what God is able to do and what God does, and will have no objections to that at all. And you move it, what two thousand years, four thousand years forward, and all of a sudden, um, that's they don't under they don't want to acquiesce right. to the God of Pharaoh, to the God that messed around with Pharaoh, is the same God that's going to save you or or leave you to your own devices. Right.
2: Yep. Yeah, and a big reason for that is our modern insistence on hyper individualism. Mm-hmm. We we are little atoms, a- 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 we're 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 islands with no real connection to anybody else. Um, we we call ourselves individuals rather than persons. I think that's one of the most horrific things that that we moderns have, have done is to exchange the word person for individual. I'm an individual. Uh, Well, that's just not the way God made us. Um, We are persons. We have relations. We, we relate to each other. We have actual connections to other people. That's how this world works. But we all want to see ourselves as completely separate. I can stand on my own. I think that's a big part of the explanation for the sexual identity crisis that we're Mm. seeing. Um, We're so individualistic that I get to define everything there is about me. Not even my parents get to define those things.
1: And certainly not society. Right. Uh, I think Jordan Peterson says that if you, if you do not have interaction with people, you go insane because there's nobody to buffer your thoughts against, there's nobody to say to tell you, to give you feedback on your thoughts or your you know your actions
2: right that, that's why um, isolation in prisons, solitary confinement is viewed so so uh, so bad uh, that that's cruel and unusual mm-hmm. to isolate somebody for an extended period of time, okay, for a, a week, people can tolerate that. But for months and years, people cannot tolerate that because that's not how we were made.
1: Yeah. And we are also in another sense, we are not individualistic in that we at what happened to Adam. Yes. That's why I.
2: that's exactly why I said that's why that's why I brought that up. And we touched on it earlier. I I talked about semi-pelagianism, and I thought maybe there was uh it we needed some clarity there. Um We're jumping way ahead in the Roman study. We won't get there till Romans 5, but if I can read a verse from Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That verse is key to understanding what we're saying about total depravity. Why is it that everybody is a sinner. Well, it's it's this verse. It's because every, all of humanity, every man, woman, and child that would ever be brought into existence was in the loins of Adam at one time. Yeah. they were, we, we were all there.
1: Right. So when he sinned, we sinned.
2: We sinned. And when he was judged for that... We were judged. We were judged for that. Mm-hmm. And so when he died spiritually we all died spiritually
1: thus unable to choose anything but death and and destruction
2: so pelagius came along and said no adam's adam's fall only affected adam okay future generations were not affected by that and if anybody is a sinner it's because they copied adam Okay and so you can see the individualisticness there we're all we're all islands. we're all separate. I have no real connection with Adam, and so when he sinned, it had no effect on me. and the only reason I'm a sinner is because I copy Adam in his sin. That's straight up pelagianism, and that was um condemned as a heresy that that's a everybody. Everybody's in agreement that that's a heresy. The Bible does not teach that. So here comes then a modified version of that, what we call semi-pelagianism, which is where um, the Armenian is. and they will say, yes, Adam's fall uh, uh, affected future generations. it affected all of mankind. That's true. The Bible teaches that, you got to believe it. But what it didn't do, is affect the totality of man, the the totality of the sinner. It affected him greatly, but there's a small little bit of him, that island of righteousness. Just enough. Just enough where I can still spiritually choose or not choose. And so because of that little bit that's left in me, um, that part can cooperate with God's grace and I can choose to be saved.
1: So is there any thought about then what is it just random like what's the is there a pattern I'm I'm saying from the Armenian perspective you know if that's true then what is the impetus that somebody picks yay or nay what what's the drive if any or is it completely random
2: There's all kinds of double talk um, to try to answer this from the Armenian side, because you can't have the, the Armenian can't have it to where they say something along the lines of, well, I just used more of my intellect. Like that would not be acceptable that you could be accused of pride there. You could be Mm -hmm. accused of all kinds of things there. Um, but, but really that is all they're left with. They, 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 they have no answer. And so, um, They're just the ones that through their own faculties chose.
1: They just had it, had it a better. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know how to finish the sentence. It's man. Yeah.
2: It's glory robbing. Mm
1: -hmm. It's glory robbing, whether
2: they'll admit it or not.
1: You're right. It, It robs the, the create creator of the glory that he deserves as the creator.
2: Right. And Christ's work, the Holy Spirit's work.
1: Well, uh, last thing, uh, I was watching a YouTube video. Um, It was a G3 conference, which is a reformed organization. And there were a bunch of pastors on the stage at a church. And the moderator went around and asked each pastor, what, what was the book that brought them to the sovereignty of God? And I thought, oh, that's... That's right in line with what we're talking about. So I wanted to just read list off some of these books, and I will link these books in the show notes. Um, the Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. The End for Which God Created the World by Jonathan Edwards, which was really popular. Many of the men on the stage listed that one. Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. A Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. A Defense of Calvinism by Charles Spurgeon. And... What I, I added this, my, this is mine at Tulip, which is a really simple, small little book by Dwayne Spencer. And you mentioned the bondage of the will Mm -hmm. and you have any other recommendations?
2: Well, you quoted out of the attributes of God by Arthur.
1: Oh, right. Uh Uh, I
2: think that certainly deserves to be on that list. Both of those books, the sovereignty of God and the attributes of God by Arthur W. Pink were um, highly influential for me.
1: Yeah. Um, and then Putting Amazing Back into Grace by Mike Horton, who happens to be my uncle. So uh, he wrote that book at a very young age. I think that there's been later editions throughout the years, but the first copy of that was called Mission Accomplished. And he started that book when he was 14 years old. Imagine that.
2: Imagine that is right. Yeah.
1: And get, and you know who influenced Mike Horton? Dr. Michael Horton. Right. <laughs> was Larry Horton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, the last, well, let me do this before I finish. I just want you to hit home one more time. Um what would you tell somebody who uh, is open to knowing what the what the Bible truly teaches and they're just having a hard time it, because it's so ingrained in them, they and their parents taught it to them, their church teaches it to them. They don't want to let go of the Armenianism, but they want to they don't want to be uh, believing something that the Bible doesn't teach, Right. what would be the thing that you would tell them?
2: Christ said, my sheep hear my voice. And um, if, if any of this is striking a chord with you, press into it. Ask yourself honestly, genuinely, how much of what I believe is derived from the Bible and how much of it is derived from what my parents taught me or my pastor or my denomination. And we all have that. We all have our tradition. We all have um, presuppositions that we bring to the Bible. Work, work at uh, distinguishing the difference. Put out the effort to to ask yourself what what is the source of what I'm believing here? And if it's not the Bible, be prepared to abandon. Abandon it, let it go.
1: And ask yourself who gets the glory.
2: And then ask yourself who gets the glory is exactly right. No, no, that that's that that's exactly right. We we want to honor Christ. We want to honor Christ's work. And if there's anything that I believe that robs him of the glory that he deserves, I want to be done with it. I want I I want to I want to recognize it and jettison it.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Recognize it and jettison it. Thank you again. Um, And for the listeners, if you have any questions about uh, the podcast, you can email me at thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. That's thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. Last quote. It was too beautiful for me not to, to mention. This is from All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. It would be a very wonderful thing if one could stand at the foot of Niagara Falls and could speak a word, which would make the Niagara River begin to run upstream and leap up that great precipice over which it now rolls down in stupendous force. Nothing but the power of God could achieve that marvel, but that would be more than a fit parallel to what would take place if the course of your nature were altogether reversed. All things are possible with God. He can reverse the directions of your desires and the current of your life. Mm-hmm. And instead of going downward from God, he can make your whole being tend upward toward God. Isn't that beautiful?
2: Amen.
1: And that is what what happens to the Christian. They they their desires upward toward God when before they were downward away from God. Right.
2: Thank God for men like Charles Spurgeon.
1: Thank you for listening to the Timeless Gospel Podcast.